0: We return um, very briefly, following our Lenten and um, Easter series, uh, to our series in Matthew already in progress. We pick up in Matthew chapter 21 today. We'll begin reading at verse 23. I say briefly return to it because next week, um, Pastor Scott Wells, uh, RUF at Covenant College, will be uh, preaching and the week after that, we have another guest, and then we will come back May 14th to this. As you turn to Matthew 21 and verse 23, let me just give you a real quick recap. In, in chapter, the beginning of chapter 21, we have the well-known account known as the Palm Sunday account, or the triumphal entry, where the king arrives, arriving uh, prophetically upon a donkey. Coming to establish the promised peaceable kingdom, which will involve judgment upon his enemies and vindication for his faithful followers, the faithful followers of the king. Now it's important we understand that that's the expectation of the arriving king and the peace that he will establish it involves judgment of his enemies and vindication of his people. It's important that we remember that because the next scene, beginning verse 12, involves that peacemaking king overthrowing the tables in the temple, purifying the temple, for it is the throne room of the rightful king. Thought he came to establish peace, so we begin to think. And then, if that's not enough, beginning with verse 18, we have this strange account of the peacemaking king prophetically displaying his peacemaking justice by cursing the fruitless fig tree. We talked about that several weeks ago and we will not go into that again except to say that the fig tree had come prophetically in the history of Israel to represent Israel. And so here is a fig tree that appeared to be living but wasn't bearing fruit. And so the peacemaking king prophetically executes his judgment upon the fig tree. None of this, of course, his behavior in the temple and his behavior towards the fig tree is lost on the religious authorities. Since Jesus' actions are, in fact, a direct indictment of their presumed position of privilege and authority. And so they challenge him. By what authority do you do these things? And of course, you remember that Jesus answers them with this question. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And of course, they couldn't answer. And so Jesus follows up that answer. He continues his answer, if you will. With two parables and a lesson, and that's what we will be reading today. So, read with me. Matthew chapter 21. Excuse me, beginning with verse uh, 28. 23 is where the authority is challenged. Verse 28 begins the parable. So, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I'm not going, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And the man went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said to him, the first, Jesus said to them. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And then even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. And finally, the master sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, they said to him, Well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on any way, anyone, it will crush him. When the chief... is one of the funniest statements in Scripture. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was talking about them. <laughs> you think? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God to us, his people. Today, let us go and ask that by his spirit, he would grant us the courage to hear, strength to believe. And so, Father, that is what we pray, that by the powerful working of your spirit upon us who come to you in the name of Jesus as your children bearing his name because he was crucified for our sins and raised for our life. We pray that you would strengthen us to know the power and the dynamics and the excruciating joy of your peacemaking work in our lives and in our world. We pray it, as your children, in Jesus, Amen. In 1962, Daniel Bornstein, who was an American, a historian of American history, wrote a book entitled "The Image." The subtitle is "A Guide to Pseudo Events in America." in which he states in one of the introductions that what dominates American experience today is not reality. He goes on then to argue in the rest of the book that what dominates American, the American experience today is some manufactured facsimile that mimics reality while holding it at arm's length. Listen to how he opens the original introduction. In this book, I describe the world of our making, how we have used our wealth, our literacy, our technology, and our progress to create the thicket of unreality which stands between us and the facts of life. That might be a 1962 description of the Tower of Babel. He goes on, I recount in this book historical forces which have given us this unprecedented opportunity to deceive ourselves and to befog our experience. Of course, he goes on, America has provided the landscape and has given us the resources and the opportunity for this feat of national self-hypnosis. But each of us individually provides the market and the demand for the illusions which flood our experience. 1962, 55 years ago, he wrote that. And it seems that it just gets better. We get better. We become experts. Experts at deceiving ourselves. To the extent that today, authenticity is all the rage. We're all about authenticity. We're suckers. We're suckers for authenticity. It doesn't have to be authentic. It just has to feel authentic. So desperately do we want authenticity. We want the real thing. We want the original. We gotta be me, we cry. I gotta be true to myself. Don't ever, ever expect me to not be true to myself. That's anathema. It's a cardinal sin. My, for myself... I want the real thing, not that stuff in the blue and red and white can that some people drink, you know, that tries to desperately imitate the real thing. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you want to drink something that is going to eat your insides out, drink the real thing. So you can imagine my horror in the 80s when the real thing started trying to imitate the imitation of the real thing in an effort to be more real. When they introduced new Coke, it was a disaster. I said, why are they doing that? Pepsi's entire business plan is to be like Coke. Why do they want to be like Pepsi? Sorry, David. He's not, he's, I guess he's downstairs. I love you. I love you. Authentic. Something that is not false. Not copied. Not an imitation, but the real thing. The original. Imagine the tragic, the tragedy of events in early 2013 in northern London. I mean, this, I don't know if you read it, but it hit the international news scene. Um, patrons of um, the local independent coffee shop, um, Harris and Hool, had just discovered, they had to bring in counselors. They had just discovered that Harrison Hool was but a 40% owned subsidiary of the large national supermarket chain Tesco in England. They were devastated. They thought they were drinking the real thing, authentic, independent coffee at an authentic shop. And when they started looking, they realized the counters were for Micah. Crying out loud with a faux wood grain they'd been lied to. So captivated by the promise and allure of authenticity, are we, that it doesn't have to be authentic. It just has to appear authentic. It just has to feel authentic. And whatever you do, please don't let me know that it's not. But it's not just our reality that we insist must appear authentic, it's our truth. It must feel true, quite aside from whether it is or is not true. It must feel true. If it doesn't feel true, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel authentic, well then it's not which is exactly what Stephen Colbert in 2005 was getting at when he introduced into or reintroduced into our lexicon with a retooled definition, truthiness. Truthiness, isn't that a great word? Truthiness. Truthiness is a quality characterizing a truth that a person making an argument or assertion claims to know intuitively from the gut, or because it feels right, without regard to evidence, logic, intellectual examination, or facts. Truthiness. It was elected as the word of the year in 2005. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like and feels like to live as slaves bound and blinded by the lies of our enemy. It is the state of humanity since the garden, this addiction we have to the appearance of truth without its substance, to the appearance of authenticity without the authority of authenticity. And it creates quite a challenge for those of us who presume ourselves to be people of light and truth. Our culture's highest good is the absolute freedom to be authentic, to be ourselves, to be true to ourselves without external pressures, to discover our inner passions and our inner person and the freedom from all pressure and limitations. For those of us who are deeply addicted to the cisterns of this culture's authenticity and yet claim ourselves to be Christians, it plays out something like this. To live faithfully, so we think, as a disciple of Jesus is to have received permission, to have received justification from the big man himself, And so, to have received the necessary grace and space to live as I see fit in my own eyes. To to feel and think and speak and act in a way that is true to myself. So So that true, authentic discipleship is obeying when I feel like it and not obeying when I don't. As for example, the reasoning plays out something like this. No genuine authentic disciple of Jesus who loves who loves us just as we are at the moment without correction or judgment. No genuine authentic disciple of that Jesus would actually forgive someone if they didn't feel Forgiving. That would be inauthentic. That would be hypocritical. Jesus doesn't want us to be hypocritical because he's so gracious. He certainly doesn't want us to act in a way that's not true to our inner selves. Here's another example. Similarly, no self-respecting, authentic disciple of Jesus would give up a, would give up a God-given right or privilege if they didn't feel like it. That would be dishonest. That would be inauthentic. The problem is that within the biblical world, authentic authenticity is never a question of being true to oneself, but being true to Christ. And none of us ever naturally feels like being true to Christ. It's hard work. We naturally want to be true to ourselves. And that's why the culture's authenticity craze feels so right, but is actually so fatal. So how is one to live an authentically authentic life in a world of lies, and that question presses upon us a prior question, how might we recognize authentic authenticity in a world of highly skilled imitations? Because we are very good at it. This is exactly the challenge that the Pharisees have been posing to Jesus. By what authority do you come? And so as Jesus is helping them think through these things, he begins to unfold for us the the theory, the understanding that authentic lives grow from an authentic faith. Authentic lives are rooted in an authentic faith. Corollary to that is to the extent that our faith is inauthentic, our lives will be inauthentic. The second corollary to that is if our lives display inauthenticity, it is because our faith is at that point inauthentic. So, what is this authentic faith which grows from an authentic And that is what Jesus is unfolding for us here in these parables. The first parable is pretty self-explanatory. Authentic faith is an obeying faith. Even when it doesn't feel like it. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first. Son, go and work in the vineyard. I'm not gonna go. I don't feel like it, Dad. Not that I've ever heard those words, or that anyone else in this room has ever said those words or heard those heard those words, but I'm pretty sure that's how it went. Oh Dad, I don't want to. It's not my turn. Mana! I had to say it. Sorry, guys. And then, afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. He goes to the second one, and he says, "Son, go into the garden and work the vineyard. Or go, into the, go and work in the vineyard." And he says, oh yeah, I'm going, Dad. I'm going. I'm on it. Right on it. Fifteen minutes later, uh, son? Yeah, yeah, right on it. As soon as I finish this game, Dad. Uh, son. Yeah, I didn't tell you when I was going. I just said I was going. And in the end, of course, doesn't go. We know the story. Which of them... Obeyed. It's not the one who said he would go and didn't. It's the one who said, No, I don't want to do that, but did. That's authenticity. He doesn't want to, but because of his love for the Father, he does go. Right, And so then Jesus immediately applies it. I say to you, who is he speaking to? He is speaking to the ones who are challenging his authority because his authority is challenging theirs. He's speaking to the Pharisees and he's saying, I say to you, look! These tax collectors, the worst possible kind of sinners, and these prostitutes, the worst, kind of, worst possible kind of sinners... They are going to enter the kingdom because they have their entire lives been saying, I will not go, I will not go, I will not go. And when John the Baptist came and and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, they said, now I will go. And they go. Matthew himself is testimony of this. Later, of course, that great convert, that great Pharisee convert, Paul, who spent his entire career saying, I will not follow that Jesus. In fact, I will destroy all of his followers. Now follows. But it's the ones who presume themselves to be following that in fact are not. Not. Authentic faith obeys the word of the Father, even when it doesn't feel like it, because it recognizes the Father. It recognizes that the Father's authority trumps my feelings. After all, we are not our own, brothers and sisters. We have been bought at a price so that now we are owned by another his authority trumps. But not only does it obey, it bears fruit. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a tower. The image comes from Isaiah chapter 5. My beloved built a vineyard. And it is a spectacular vineyard. It is a well structured vineyard. It is a well provided for vineyard. He did everything that he needed to do to make this vineyard successful and fruit bearing, and he leases it. This is a valuable, valuable, wealth producing piece of property. And he leases it to tenants. And when the season for fruit drew near, and it's important that you hear the echo of what has gone on previously in chapter 21. Remember the fig tree that was not bearing fruit? You need to be hearing that because this language of fruit is appearing all the way through this chapter. So when the the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. You know the story. This tenants took the servants, beat one, killed another, stoned another, and they did the same to a second set. And of course, you hear unfolding, don't you, the history of Israel and their response to the prophets. Their response to Isaiah, their response to Jeremiah, their response to the prophets that came before and the prophets that came after. Jesus is telling a parable of the history of God's people, not just the history of faithless Israel, but the history of God's people, you and me. He's describing our natural inclination, Our natural feeling whenever the word of the Lord comes to us, demanding of us things that we're not naturally inclined to give up, our natural inclination is to beat the messenger, to kill the messenger, to stone the messenger, because we don't like the message. Because we believe that the message is seeking to seize from us something that is rightfully ours or something that could be ours as we see. Their motives become clear. Finally, he sent his son. Surely they will respect my son. And of course, the irony here is the son has come. The son is speaking now to the tenants. And the son is saying to the tenants, what you will do here is what will unfold in the next 72 hours. Come. This is the heir. Let us kill him. And we will have from him his inheritance. And so they took him. They throw him out of the vineyard. Even as a few days later they would throw him out of Jerusalem and they killed him. And so Jesus says, so when the master, when the owner comes, what will, he, what will he do? Well, they will put those wretches out. They will put those wretches to a wretched death, is how they describe it um, more precisely. And let out the vineyard to other tenants. They're so caught up in the story of the parable, they don't realize that they've just indicted themselves. Even as we often do. You noticed yourself doing that, talking about someone, and you're, they should do this, they should do that. Oh, that's horrible. Only in our most honest times, which for me are rare, um, realizing that what you're saying about that person is true about you is so often the case. And so Jesus says, Do you not, have you not read in Scripture, there is a, there is a desperation here? Have you not read in scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The image here is of a construction site with all of these stones built up. And they're going through the stones to find the perfect stone that will be either the cornerstone to begin their project well or the capstone to end it well. There's an ambiguity in the term there. And they're going through all of these rocks and they pick up... This perfect rock, and if we're watching on TV, we're saying, "Dude, that's the perfect rock," and they all look at each other and go, "Eh," and they throw it away. And so their building is a disaster because they have rejected the perfect rock. That's what's about. That's what that is about. And in the same way, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who produce its fruit. There's that word again. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Authentic faith obeys and bears fruit. It's worth reflecting, what does faith that does not bear fruit look like? And this is where this, past, this message gets a little bit um, sensitive. Because keep in mind, he was talking to the regular church attenders and the pastors and the theologians. He was talking to us. Faith that does not bear fruit like that fig tree can often give the appearance of being alive without bearing the fruit that it was designed to bear. They were going to temple. They were offering the prescribed sacrifices. In fact, they were doing much more than the law required. So... So sincere and so earnest and so zealous were they to be found righteous on that last day. But they weren't loving and they weren't forgiving and they weren't caring. They weren't being gentle one with another. I'm describing the fruit of the Spirit, you see. They they looked like that fig tree, like they were alive and well. And yet the fruit that the fig tree was designed to produce was not there. Brothers and sisters, it is important that we begin to ask ourselves the question what does does authentic faith look like? And to ask ourselves the question is my life bearing the fruit of authentic faith? What does that mean? Well, just as a simple exercise you can look at Galatians if you would like to. Galatians chapter 5 The fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Just choose one of those. Just choose one of those over the course of a year and ask yourself, am I more loving today than I was a year ago? If you're really courageous, ask your roommate. If you're really, really courageous, ask your kids. Because the the point is not perfection. The point is that the Spirit is growing in us the character of Christ. Ask yourself, am I more joyful today than I was a year ago? Ask your spouse. Am I more at peace than I was a year ago? Brothers and sisters, even as I ask the questions... I feel the pinpricks in my own heart. But that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for activity. We're not looking at whether or not um, you're in temple, as important as that is. The litmus test that Isaiah gives to his people as he's developing the same theme in Isaiah chapter 52, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 58, is this. Are you keeping the Sabbath? Are you honoring what in the New Testament terms we call the Lord's day? Are you, actually, are you actually honoring it and celebrating and participating in the riches that are yours by the resurrection of Jesus on the Lord's day? The riches of fellowship together one with another on the Lord's day. Feasting upon it. Giving yourself away in sacrificial service one to another and to strangers and enemies. But not only does authentic faith is, not, is authentic faith obeying faith, it is also and bearing fruit. It also recognizes and rejoices in the presence of the Son. You see, what are the tenants looking for in the second parable, dude? If we knock him out of the way, we can have all of his riches for ourselves. And so often, there's, we, isn't it true that in our culture, so many of us come to Jesus, not because he's Jesus, but because of what we can get out of him. You see, brothers and sisters, our inheritance is Jesus. That's why Paul says to the Colossians, Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's why Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, says, When I came to you, I came to make known to you nothing other than Jesus and him crucified. Because, brothers, it's hidden in Jesus are all the riches of wisdom and understanding courage and peace and hope that we so desperately long for our culture tells us just what these tenants believed if we can knock Jesus out of the way we can have it all brothers and sisters this is the lie straight from the from the garden If you you do an end run around the master of the garden, Adam and Eve, then you can have it all. All that stuff that he has and more besides that he's not even telling you about. It's the same pattern. And And the lie of our culture is the same pattern. Throw away all authority, all external constraints, so that you can have it all. Go for the gusto. But brothers and sisters, it is a lie. It is fatal. And it leads to hell. Biblically, you see, authenticity is not understood as freedom from authority. In fact, that is the core of our enemy's lie. Rather, Authenticity is our right relation and our right connection to authority in the world and its people as they are. Authenticity is right relation, right connection to authority, most primarily to the authority, God in the flesh, as he is. Come to us. But the lie of authenticity that our culture feeds us is that if we just kill the sun, we will inherit the vineyard. That is the ultimate, so our culture says, in absolute freedom, which is so necessary, as Sartre says, for living authentically. But, brothers and sisters, it will kill you, whether you clothe it with the name of the sun or not. Authenticity, biblically speaking, involves rightly hearing and rightly stewarding and rightly seeing and rightly relating to the Son as he makes himself known. Authenticity, in terms of etymology, means that which comes from the author, that which is authenticated as coming from the author's hand. And so an, an art expert authenticates a Monet by identifying the number of distinctive characteristics that are common to all Monets. And so it is here, Jesus himself displays, as John tells us, most perfectly and completely all of the authenticating marks of the triune God, of the author himself. And so bears in himself the authority of authorship. Brothers and sisters, living in this world authentically means living in the knowledge that he is our author and our lives are his story. C.S. Lewis closes out his book, Mere Christianity, this way. At the beginning, I said there were personalities in God. I will go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else until you have given up yourself to him you will not have a real self sameness is to be found most among the most natural men not among those who surrender to christ how monotonously alike are alike all the great are all the great tyrants conquerors how gloriously different are the saints But there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real, new self, which is Christ's, and also yours, and yours just because it is His, will not come to you as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for Him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring, two pence, which is British money for those of you who don't know, how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noted it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, he concludes. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be truly yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred. Excuse me. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him everything else thrown in. When the sun arrived at the vineyard that day he was the son of the master the creator of the vineyard it's not just that he comes with authority he is the authority it's not just that he speaks with authority but he is the author and indeed the finisher of authentic faith and knowing that is the root that leads to authentic living. So Jesus, grant us courage to see you for who you are.